Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. We know that everyone is currently operating in a new normal as we are all experiencing some life-altering challenges during this difficult time in our world. We hope that these messages offer some reassurance and it reminds you that our hope does not lie in man, but in God and his plan for all of us. If you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information, check out our website, anacorduschristian.church. That's anacorduschristian.church. You can contact us directly through our website or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. Well, we are in a series called Planted in Foreign Soil. It's a series through the book of Daniel, and we were in chapter one last week. We're still in chapter one this week. And last week, we talked about how this book is apocalyptic. And by apocalypse, usually what we have in mind is something having to do with the end of the world. But actually, the term has very little, if anything, to do with the end of the world. The term apocalypse just means unveiling or uncovering or revealing. And, and the situation that we find ourselves in this introduction is one that looks like exile, defeat, hopelessness. It looks like an end, but the language is given in such a way to give you hints and a clue that, in fact, God is doing something new here. What looks like the end is a new beginning. And um, Israel has been besieged by Babylon, and some of the people have been carried off into exile. And the question is, are they being indoctrinated? Are they being, is it an end of Israelite culture, or is God planting seeds? Okay, and, and the same is true for us. We made the connection because Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples, including his future disciples who would believe in him through the message of his apostles, you and me, he prayed, God, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Okay, he says, I'm sending you into the world. And he says, I want them to look different, set them apart, sanctify them by Your word, your word is truth. And so in the same way that Daniel and his friends are set apart from the others, they look different because they feasted not on Babylon's food, but on their own king's food. That was last week, the vegetables, the seeds that they ate instead of the king's food. Their image changed. They looked different. And Jesus Praise for you and I. He says, you and I are planted in foreign soil like Babylon. And the question is, will we look different? And, he's, and he prays for us so that the world may know that God sent him because of how we look, because we're set apart. And so this is very relevant for us today. And that's what Jesus prays for for us today. But the question is, How would our world know? Do we look any different? And how would we look different? Well, the answer is at whose table have we been eating? What image are we conforming to? And so no matter what, being a Christian is always gonna feel a bit like going against the current. It's always gonna be a bit like going upstream. And the amazing thing about Christianity is that it can adapt to every culture but it also challenges 
every culture. Today, we're going to stay in chapter one because there are some key observations here to be made about culture and how it works. We have in this passage a clash of cultures, and so we're going to walk through that. Uh, When I was... um, I wasn't quite married to my wife yet. I'm not sure where we were in, in the process there. But uh, my father-in-law took my wife and I on a little canoe trip. We put in at Bowman's Bay here on Fidalgo Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to paddle up Deception Pass. Okay, that's, that's a question. Now, when I was in Alaska, when I lived in Alaska, we had big currents because we had big tides. We had bigger tides. The farther north you go, you, you get bigger tides than we do here even, even though these are pretty big tides in Washington as well. But I was surprised because I didn't realize that how fast the tides move here in, uh, in Washington, especially here in Anacortes and Puget Sound, because there's such a huge volume of water coming in and out of the sound. So the tides just rip through there, especially Deception Pass, because you have this tiny little narrow opening with this bridge over the top. And inside is this large body of water, and all that water is just rushing in and out as the tides are coming in and out. And so we paddled around in the canoe for a while, and then uh, my father-in-law asked, hey, do you want to try to go up Deception Pass? I, I had no idea. So it's like, well, sure, yeah. And so, you know, the goal would have been to try to time it so that you're trying to paddle up when the tides change so that you can make it under the bridge and not be swept one way or another. But we turned around the corner and we started heading that direction and we realized the tide was going out. And so we made this concerted effort, and we were paddling for all we were worth, and we were like unified, okay? We were, we were in motion together, and we were like a well-oiled machine, and we were streamlined, and I could see the water just rushing past us, and it felt like we were going fast. And then I look at the, at the, 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 um, the shore line over there, and it's like dead still, okay? We're not moving at all. And so we had to actually finally pull off to the side and pull into this little bay on the other side of Bowman's Bay there. But have you ever tried to paddle upstream or swim upstream? It's difficult, right? It takes a serious amount of effort. But by contrast, it takes no effort whatsoever to let the current pull you downstream. When following Jesus becomes comfortable for me, I'm probably not really following Jesus that much anymore because it's always challenging what is native to my culture and my assumptions. When you become a Christian, you find yourself adopted by God and given a whole new identity. You're being remade after the image of God. But as we're gonna see, Babylon is very interested in identity as well. Babylon is very interested in names. Babylon is very interested in image. And this is true of every culture. Your self-image or identity is massively influenced by your surrounding culture. Every culture tries to push an identity upon its people. What is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, how you should look, how you shouldn't look, what's right, what isn't right, um, how you find value and meaning in your life. Every culture also has 
and identity formation process. This is how you figure out who you are in society and what your value is in that society. And so today we're gonna examine Babylon's identity formation process, and we're probably gonna make some connections to our modern-day times here. I wanna read Daniel 1 through verse 8. We're not gonna read the whole chapter, though we did last week, but this is the part we're gonna mostly focus on this week. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the wisdom and the discernment and the understanding to hear what your word has for us today. I pray for the desire to be birthed in us to choose the identity and the name that you pronounce over us. Please make this message clear this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In this passage, I've outlined kind of three steps to identity formation process as we see in Babylon and in most cultures. And that first step is deconstruction. Step one is deconstruction. It's really easy to be a Christ follower when you live in a Christian bubble, surrounded by church, friends, or family who are like-minded and encouraging one another all the time. But when you're isolated, as many of us are today, or you're removed from that comfortable environment, or maybe all your coworkers disagree with you, you're kind of the odd duck, you know, in in the whole bunch. That's a lot more difficult. And in this story, for Babylon to conquer Israel would be interpreted as Babylon's gods destroying or, or conquering or swallowing up Israel's God. Babylon is making a statement, we're stronger than you, and our gods are stronger than your God, and they're swallowing them up into their own culture by bringing them into their own house, their own temple, their own treasury. So when they take the vessels of the house of God, these were temple items that had been consecrated or set apart as holy to the Lord, 
So the message is very clear. Your God is being swallowed up by our gods. When you get to the heart of it, the thing that shapes every culture is its gods or its idols. And that may seem odd today because especially in our secular culture, by and large, we don't talk in terms of gods, right? But if you're going to be a scientist, for example, you're going to run into people who will claim that naturalism has swallowed up your God. It's no long, you're no longer relevant. Or in business or politics, if you turn the other cheek, you might just get smacked harder. <laughs> or in times of suffering, there are times when following God just doesn't seem to be working out. And surely this would have been the struggle here. If God is truly in control, how could he let the other gods win? How could he let them be victorious? Why doesn't he show up and perform some miracle and defeat all these people? And that's certainly what the false prophets in Daniel and Jeremiah's time were, were preaching to the people. Oh, don't worry. God's going to avenge us and we're going to win. This is all going to be over soon. But have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that kind of hopelessness, like the rug's just been pulled out from under you? Daniel and the other students who were with him, they would have known that this event had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah for 23 years. And eventually the author of the story is gonna have enough revelation to claim in the book of Daniel that as we read, it was God who gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And that even in times of conquest, God is still doing something and he's still in control. But in the moment, when we don't have hindsight yet, it's difficult to feel that way. And so notice also there's a strategy here. Who do they remove from Israel? First he says it's the royal family. And as we said last week in Hebrew, it's the seeds of the kingdom, right? Nobility, people of influence. In particular, they say it's the youths. Now in this culture, this is a very collectivist culture. And there are two basic kinds of culture in the world under which a lot of other cultures sort of, sort of fall under those umbrellas. But, but traditionally, in traditional cultures, or in a lot of Eastern cultures today, you have collectivist cultures. Our Western culture is kind of a revolt against that. It's a very individualistic culture. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But a, a collectivistic culture is defined as, as, in a traditional culture as your identity was based on your position in your family, first and foremost, then your surrounding community, then your tribe, and then your nation. And so that's how you'd identify yourself the most. You weren't so much identified by what you do, like I'm Joe and I'm a plumber, or I'm Rex and I'm an avid skydiver, or you know, one of those things. Instead, you'd be known as the son of, or the daughter of, or the father or mother of the tribe of Fill in the blank. And in that kind of a culture, your value isn't so much assigned based on how well you do your job or achieve your goals or your dreams. It's, it's, a it's ascribed based on how well you fit that role and your place in that family or that collective, okay? You, you, know, you plan on taking on the family business. You're not gonna strike out on your own and fulfill your dreams. 
Uh, so, so value and worth are bestowed upon you by the culture based on your role in the group and how well you fulfill that role. Notice what Babylon does. It removes these people from the very structure that gives them meaning and a sense of a place. The youth are taken, right? No more family, no more community, no more tribe, no more nation. It all means nothing now. So step one is deconstruction. Conquer and swallow up your source of confidence, your God, and uproot you from all of the cultural elements that give you an identity, okay? You are a hard drive that has just been transferred to a brand new computer. You're being reformatted, erased, wiped clean, and you're about to be reprogrammed, all right? And that's where step two is gonna come in. Step two is reindoctrination or education. They picked youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So notice, they took the cream of the crop, the ones who showed the most potential, those who had wisdom and could gain knowledge. And last week, we talked about the language there, how it's kind of like the language of the forbidden fruit in the garden, and, and also as like the tree of life, the wisdom of God, or, or like Solomon. And we made a good strong point there that you can go back and listen to online if you go online and listen to last week's message but now we have an education program. Um, one of my authors that I was reading, W.L. Witter, writes, the educational process was more than job training. It was an enculturation process, a shaping of the mind. The school was an ideological molder of minds, the place where future members of the bureaucracy were socialized, where they received a common stock of ideas and attitudes which bound them together as a class and in many ways separated them from their original backgrounds. Notice also that sandwiched in between these two statements about their education, as though it is a part of the education itself, they are to be wined and dined with the food of royalty, right? Witter goes on, for three years they were immersed in Babylonian culture, its food, its traditions, its religion, its language. By the time the training was complete, Nebuchadnezzar intended to own these men, mind and body. Now take note, this is important. Daniel and his friends did not resist the education process for the most part. In almost all of these things, they submitted to Babylon. There is nothing wrong with learning from another culture, to an extent. And after the three years were complete, the text says that they were ten times wiser than their classmates. They learned things. Okay, swimming against the current, being countercultural for Jesus, doesn't mean that other cultures have no wisdom to offer. 
Being a Christian isn't about arrogantly claiming cultural superiority in all things as though we can't learn from science or even from other cultural practices or even religions to some extent or another. But the question is one of identity. What justifies you? What gives you a name? What lays claim to who you are and defines it? An identity isn't only formed from knowledge and education, no. Identity comes from your sense of worth and value. In other words, Babylon is very intentional, not only in their education, but in how they make their students feel, right? How others make you feel because of your position, because of your knowledge, is every bit as identity-forming as the education itself. When I was in my last year of university, I was only part-time that year because I was almost done with my um, degree, and uh, some of my fellow classmates had this time that we sort of developed. It was tea time with Dr. Squires. Yes, it uh, felt almost every bit as elite as it sounds. And tea time with Dr. Squires became a beloved tradition every Monday afternoon where, you know, a few of us students, maybe two to eight of us, would sit in his office with our cups of tea and little British crackers and we would discuss higher things of life, you know. But on Tuesday, you see, by this point I was a married, very poor college student, and on Tuesday, I had a job, and that job was for a construction company, and that construction company was owned by a a boss who was known for never showing any signs of acknowledging achievements or praising for doing a good job of any kind. And so there's always this question of like, am I doing okay? And, and, but he'd certainly make you know it if you failed at something. And so it was always this anxiety-producing, nerve-wracking situation. So here I was in these two opposite ends of the spectrum, a construction job on Tuesday right after Um, sitting in Dr. Squires' tea time, and this just wreaked havoc on my identity. Who was I going to be? Okay, was it whatever I chose to be in that moment or, or you know, who, whoever defined whatever that identity was going to be? Well, you better believe that the answer to that question had little to do with the knowledge that I was receiving from the university versus the construction industry, right? no. It had to do very much with how I felt in that formation process, and I was very much obliged to choose one over the other. Today, what we see in our universities, our politics, and our social media is a lot of identity politics, a lot of identity formation. Our culture is pushing a strong reindoctrination process, even giving old words new definitions, like the word tolerance, right? The word tolerance, which once meant we can agree to live in a culture with a plurality of ideas 
And even if I disagree with you fundamentally, I will choose to respect and honor you as a person and respect your right to believe what it is you want to believe. But now tolerance is something totally different. Now tolerance is you must unconditionally agree with and accept my position, even celebrate it, or you are intolerant. We're in an age of information. And this age has given us unlimited access to knowledge. But on Facebook and social media, have you noticed how awful people have become? Have you become one of those people? Come on. (laughs) Everyone is arguing about information and ideas and knowledge. But it is also identity forming because they are attaching one's value and worth to another's value and worth according to whose knowledge you agree with or disagree with. Have you noticed how much shaming is going on? It's not about what you know. It's not about what you believe. It's about how you feel. And you're more likely to jump into the bandwagon to identify yourself with the ones who give you the least amount of shame for what you say or who praise you the most for what you say, what you know, what you believe. And so here's Daniel. Daniel and his friends are not only being instructed, but they're being given the king's food. I mentioned before a collectivistic culture where you'd get your identity and sense of approval based on how well you, formed your, you performed your role as part of a group, as part of a, a collective. And that's still kind of true today, but today we've totally reversed that idea. We've rebelled against it. We like to believe that we're free. We like to believe that we're much more free. We live in an individualistic culture, which means that we uh, we identify, uh, excuse me, our identity and self-worth happens not according to your role within the family community, but in how you escape those trappings and how you assert your desires and your interests and how you live the way you want to live in spite of, of what anyone else tells you. It's all about self-assertion, not self-sacrifice. Be yourself is the mantra today. Follow your heart. Pursue your dreams no matter what anyone else says. And there is some value to that. There's some benefit to it. And I'm reminded of like Zootopia or Frozen. You know, Zootopia is, you know, this movie where this little rabbit is gonna pursue her dreams no matter what to be this powerful police officer in a world where all these animals are, are living like humans in a sense. And, and, you know, the message is try everything. You can be whatever you choose to be if you just pursue your dreams and try as hard as you can. And, of course, we're all very familiar with that message, right? It's all about self-promotion, self-exaltation. Only you can determine what is right or wrong for you. And only you can bestow honor and worth and value upon yourself. Don't rely on what other people say. Only you can choose or, d- or define what your value and what your worth really are for yourself. But the truth is, that's an illusion. It's not real. 
Don't worry about what other people say. You define it. Look inside, etc. It's false. Tim Keller gave an interesting example. He gave an, exa- an illustration of a, an Anglo-Saxon warrior like 1,200 years ago or something like that who's walking through a village and he notices two major impulses within himself. And, and, and in a collectivistic culture, it's all about identifying yourself with how you fit into your collective, your group, right? And so he's got these two impulses, and one is aggression. You know, he sees someone, and if that person wrongs him or crosses his path in the wrong way or, or, or challenges him, he just wants to smash them. He just wants to pound their face in right away, right? But he notices this other impulse, He notices that he has sexual impulses that are not normal according to his culture. And in that day and age, because he lives in that collectivistic culture, it's it's a no-brainer. Like the the first one, because you're living in a warrior society, is a no-brainer. That's me. I'm going to embrace that. But that sexual urge in that day and age, he's going to look at that and he's going to say, that's not me. And he's going to squelch that urge. Whereas today, if you're walking down the street of any modern city and you have that impulse, you notice about yourself, you just want to go smash whoever gets in your way. Well, you're going to go to therapy for that, right? But that sexual urge, today, we're going to say, that's me. And we're going to celebrate that and champion that. But the truth isn't, it's not really about you define it for yourself and you just go with your impulses. No, really it does come down to who's going to approve of me? What are, who are gonna be my cheerleaders? What is the culture gonna say? What are they pushing me to do? And so they're wined and dined at the king's table. Identity comes through the praise of the praiseworthy. I need someone whom I respect and adore to the skies to tell me they respect me, as Tim Keller put it. That's how identity comes. When the one you really respect can offer you respect in return, or when the cultural narrative that everyone respects can respect you because you identify with it, that's where you find your identity. You can't generate it. It has to be bestowed upon you from the outside. And that's true for both kinds of culture, whether you're a collectivistic culture or an individualistic culture. Collectivists would say, how well you perform that role in your family. An individualist would say, no, I'm gonna be free of that and launch out on my own and pursue my dreams and live for myself, but neither are actually free. The pressure to achieve all those dreams and create an identity, that can be suffocating. You don't just have a job, you become your job. You've got to achieve it, otherwise what are you? What are they going to think? Who's going to accept you? Your worth is based on your position still, but just in a different way. But Daniel and his friends, they seem to be truly free for some reason. They were not broken when the pillars of their collectivist culture were stripped away and their hard drives were being erased. But neither was their uh, reindoctrination, identity construction, reconstruction, very successful. 
even though attached to their education came the royal treatment, give them the king's food and wine. Identity, identity comes through the praise of the praiseworthy. Here is the king, the most respected and powerful human on the world stage at this time, offering them his own royal food and wine. It doesn't get any higher than that. It wouldn't take anything at all to look at your education and the position and say, obviously, <laughs> he's right, his God is on top, our God's somewhere tucked away in this God's treasury, what am I doing? But Daniel and his friends won't take it because he, reserves, he, he receives his identity, his name from a higher king already. And he chooses to eat that king's food instead. Step two in the process of identity formation is reindoctrination or education. Step three, Babylon changes names. Step three is to change your name. Daniel is a name that means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Baal, protect his life, or protector of the king. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which probably means something like the command of Aku, the god Aku. Mishael means who is what God is, now changed to Meshach, which seems to mean who is what Aku is. Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, to now Abednego, which probably means servant of Nebo or Nabu, or helper of Nabu, right? So their names are a direct play on their Hebrew names, now pointing towards the Babylonian gods instead of the Hebrew god. Remember what I said, the real shaper of a culture is its idol, its god. Also, in just a little bit of information, Nabuchadnezzar, the king, means Nabu, protect my seed. And if you recall from last week, God gave into the hands of Nabuchadnezzar the seeds of the kingdom. <laughs> so he's in trouble. But what is Babylon? What is its defining cultural identity? We find that back in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis and in this chapter, we have the, in Daniel, we have the mention of Shinar, right, where they were replaced, the, the kingdom of Babylon, the plains of Shinar, which is mentioned back in Genesis 11, where the people had come to settle. And it says that at that time, the people had one language. And, and in chapter 11, it says the whole earth had one language and the same words as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And we move into verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice how Babylon is to educate 
They are all to learn the language, to be one of language, the language of the Chaldeans, and to make a name for ourselves that serves the tower to these gods. And so what's so interesting is that Daniel, who is a descendant of Abraham, doesn't take this name Right after the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11, you have Genesis 12, where Abraham is called to go out from the same region where Shinar is, Ur of the Chaldeans, to a land that Yahweh would show him. And Yahweh says to Abraham, I, I will make your name great. The question of identity is a question of image, self-image, right? And the question of image is a question of what it means to be truly human. God created human beings in his own image. We are meant to look and, and model who God is. We might be planted in foreign soil, but which city are we really living for? You either belong to Babylon or to the city that Abraham looked forward to, a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And what determines your home city is not necessarily the level of knowledge or education you receive from it. It's whether your image is based upon making a name for yourself, accepting the king's food and how he makes you feel and being defined by his approval. Floating downstream is so easy. But today, it seems like there's a lot of different rivers and a lot of different currents, and no matter which stream you're flowing down, you seem to be flowing against another one. But... Make no mistake, don't be deceived. You are not only making your decision based upon what you know, but upon how you feel. How that group makes you feel. You will either look to the group that gives you a name that is very approval-inducing, you will either go out and make a name for yourself, much to the applause of your peers, or will try to learn what it means to trust God for the significance that he gives. I will make your name great, he says to Abraham, Daniel's forefather. But resolving to be the person God has made us to be is difficult, like paddling upstream. If you accept the name that God has given you, then they may change your name or try. Or they may shame you or praise you for your viewpoints and your knowledge, but they'll never touch your identity. There's a little book by Max Lucado. It's a children's book. It's called You Are Special. <laughs> that cheese factor might deter you at first, but it's actually quite profound. It's about a town full of little puppets, little wooden puppets called Wemmicks. And 
all over the town, they, they go about their day. And some of them are good looking. Some of them are pretty shabby. Some of them can do tricks and impress the others. And some of them don't have much to offer, it seems. And they all go around with little stickers. And, and if you're impressive or you look good or you can do something or you say something that, that gets everyone's approval, you get a star pinned on you, a little star sticker. But if you kind of, you know, don't tell a good joke, you tell dad jokes, or <laughs> if, you, if you can't jump as high or you don't reach the approval of your peers, well, they're gonna stick a little dot on you. And so, so everyone's running around and some of them have a lot of dots and some have a lot of stars and some have a lot of mixed bag, but there's this one little puppet and his name is Punchinello. And he's a lot smaller and a little more shabby and his paint is worn and he doesn't seem to have much to offer and he's just covered in dots. Is that you? <laughs> Are you covered in dots? Are you just all over social media trying to sound really smart, identifying with whoever seems to maybe give you the most stars? Or are you covered in stars, maybe? Just like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no struggle here because I got all the approval. I'm eating at the king's table and the highest of the high in my culture says I'm his second command, so to speak. My words sound great because I know the rhetoric of this world's king, Babylon's king. And off in the corner, up in a hilltop, is this little cabin in the story. And there's, in this cabin, there is the puppet maker. His name is Eli. And one day, Punchinello meets another puppet. And he notices something odd about her. She doesn't have any stickers on her. And she could care less what people pin on her. And when, everyone try, when anyone tries to pin a sticker on her, it, it falls off no matter what. It doesn't stick. And Punchinello's like, what's the deal? All my, all my dots stick. And so she talks to her and she says, you should go talk to Eli. So he goes and he meets Eli. And Eli knows his name. He's like, how do you know me? And he's like, Punchinello, I know you because I made you. And he goes on to hear that it doesn't matter what anyone else and all their dots say about Punchinello because the only thing that matters is, is what Eli thinks because Eli made him and Eli loves him. And he asks him to come back frequently to, to visit with him. And when Punchinello goes out from that cabin, he feels a lot different. He doesn't lose all his dots right away, but something happens at the end of the story. One of his dots falls off. Do you know your maker? Do you, are you looking all around for a name, ascribing dots, shame upon people whose knowledge or understanding doesn't match with yours? Or stars just feeling really good about being in the club and if you feel good because your peers make you feel good, then your knowledge and your wisdom must be right? What about God's wisdom? it looks like foolishness to Babylon. It looks like rejecting the king's food. It looks insane. Are you at all swimming upstream? Where are you gonna get the ability to do that? Where do you get your identity? There is a higher 
king who does not say, perform to my standard and I'll give you a star. I'll make your name great. No. He just says, follow me. Come to my little cabin. Sit at my table. Trust in me to make your name great. I'll give you a name. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. Make a decision today to follow him and to receive the name he has to you for you, no matter how many dots you may receive or how hard paddling upstream may seem. Receive his love and his name. Second Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That means that when you put your trust in Jesus, then on the cross, he says, give me all your dots. So that we might become his righteousness. That means we get all his stars, him who is beautiful, him who was the image of God, him who can do no wrong, could make no mistakes, was a true holy vessel set apart unto God. Jesus says, I'll give you all my stars. You get my name. You'll be made in my image if you just trust me, if you just receive me. Let's pray. Father, we're living in a clash of cultures. We see it all so clearly. There is the deconstruction of worldviews. You thought you were valuable or your identity came from somewhere based on something, but there's always a voice that's there to tear it down or to deconstruct it or erase that hard drive as it's being transplanted. Our world is fragile. Things happen we can be transplanted in a moment's notice and everything that gave us a foundation just be stripped from us. And then there's the second phase. There's the re-indoctrination, the education process. There are cultural values at war with each other all over the place, indoctrinating all the time. And the question, Lord, is do we have the temperament, the wisdom to discern knowledge versus only being subdued and wooed by how those in our peer group and that knowledge academy make us feel as we're invited to eat at the table that represents the approval of the highest earthly king in the world. Who wouldn't want that? Because that's what we're going for all day long on social media, it seems. And then finally, there's the final process. It's a new name, a new identity, a new meaning ascribed to some god or idol. What does my name mean? What is the name that I'm trying to make for myself? What would my peers call me? What would they say defines me? Lord, do we trust you? Do I trust you to make a name for myself such that I'm willing to reject the king's food 
and swim upstream, no matter how hard it is, no matter how, dot, how many dots I receive instead of stars. Help us to trust you for the name that you are going to give us, Lord, the name you've already given us if we're in Christ, the name you promise us, the city defined by people made in the image of God. Help us to receive you and trust you for that name. We surrender to you, our King. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you, and you always have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church, even if it's virtually for now. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or if you just need someone to talk to. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.